Wow. <laughs> Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we will plunge into the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Warren Wearsby, great preacher from the past. He was teaching in a university setting, and as he taught, he was teaching a Bible class in a secular university. At the end of his class, he was talking about this very passage. A young man, agitated, ran up, got into his face, and said, Dr. Wishby, do you believe that God is our Father? Do you pray like that? And Dr. Wearsby said, well, yes, the Bible teaches it. I believe it. I pray like that. He goes, well, if that's your God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. About three years ago, I was asked to speak at a women's conference. I was the first man they had ever had come and speak. Friends, women's conferences are a bit different than men's. I picked up a few things as the only man there in my observation. Uh, Fred and I have talked. We will not ever have um, napkins. We will not have table decorations. We will not have tablecloths at our men's event. But the women know how to put on a spread of food that is out of this world, guys. The snack table was mind-blowing. <laughs> they asked me for a very specific reason. They asked me to speak on the subject of forgiveness. That morning I spoke and laid out how God has forgiven us, that you are now forgiven. And that evening I spoke on, now live your forgiveness. One of the things that happened was I paused. And I looked across this crowd of women and I, I, I felt led of the Lord to say this. Ladies, I stand before you as a man. I stand before you as a father. I stand before you as a husband. I stand before you as a brother. And I know that many of you have been deeply hurt by men. And those men have not ever apologized, nor will they. So allow me to stand in their place and say, I'm sorry. And then I went through. As a husband, I want to say, I'm sorry. But when I said, as a father, there was a gasp, followed by sobs. Afterward, many women came to me and said, I've never been apologized to by a man. And many of them began to share, Father hurts. 
There are people who I've met with who have said, Pastor Greg, I can pray to God as long as it's Jesus. I can pray to God as long as it's the Holy Spirit, but please don't ask me to call him Father. And if that is you this morning, I want you to know that as we deal with this passage, I am going to deal with it with the sensitivity of your pain. But I also want you to know something else. I want you to grant me a favor. I want you to grant me an opening. Because the Father you have experienced is not the Father I want to tell you about. I want to tell you not about an earthly father, but a heavenly father. So I would ask that you would grant me that, that privilege. I will walk gently, I will walk carefully, but allow me to share you, with you about a father who loves you. The passage begins, and Jesus says, if you'd look at it with me in, in verse 9, pray like this then. What that means is, this is a model. It's not a command that we pray this prayer wrote every week. But it is a beautiful model on how prayer is to happen. It begins with adoration. It begins with relationship. It begins with connection. And then it moves from all that adoration and connection and relationship. There's a time of intercession, a time of asking, a time of need, a time of sharing. And then, a call to action. This is a beautiful model for prayer. And I'd encourage you to incorporate it in your, in your prayer life. But, but it's not something that we just take and do over and over and over and over till it loses all meaning. Our Father. Our Father. Father. Our Father. Jesus says, call out to him as Father. This was a position that God had taken with the nation of Israel. He called himself their Father. He takes this role of father, and, it, and, and there is an entrance. There's a way to enter into a relationship, enter into a conversation with God. When I was just about a year old, President Kennedy was assassinated. Some of you remember that. Some of you are, I'm old. Thanks, thanks, Tony. Some of you remember that. But there's something that you might also remember. Some iconic pictures of little John John playing at daddy's desk. Playing in the president's office at the White House. Can you imagine the access. Here you have a lobby filled with 
secret service agents, you have generals, you've got dignitaries, you've got ambassadors, and they're all waiting their turn to see the president. And this little child bursts past them and breaks into the office so he can play in his daddy's desk. This is the picture that God has given us. Our Father. The words are interesting. Uh, the Greek word here is pater. But most Bible scholars will tell you they believe the actual word that was used here is the word Abba. And it translates Daddy. Abba. When you hear that word, doesn't it make you just kind of go, You know, when, the, when we first moved here, I, um, my wife and I were in a, a borrowed home. Uh, it was an empty home, and we had just our mattresses, and we were on the floor, and, and they had us keep our dogs in the room where we slept so that uh, they wouldn't cause any problem. And the first thunderstorm happened, and I had never experienced thunderstorms never and the lightning and then the thunder boom and I awoke to three dogs and a wife on top of me <laughs> daddy we had a friend who uh, uh, his dad volunteered to be our camp counselor. We go, and the first night, oh, his dad. No chainsaw could keep up with the snoring that this guy could do. And all of us were awake. We're burying our heads in our pillow. But we look over, and we see, we see his son. And his son is fast asleep. And the next day, we go, how do you do it? People cabins over were complaining. And he said, unless my dad's snoring is there at night, I can't sleep because it tells me my dad's home. And everything's going to be okay. Our pater. Our Abba. But you know, you say, Pastor Greg, that's nice, that's sentimental, that's, that's sweet. But you know what, Pastor Greg? That's not the dad I had. There's a beautiful phrase that is added in heaven. And I remember teaching you way back in January. Isn't that, January seems so far away. But I was teaching you that in the Old Testament, the picture of God is the picture of a shepherd. I want to share with you what I think is the New Testament picture of a father. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me from Matthew. You're going to go through Mark. You're going to go through to Luke. And I want you to go to Luke 15. And I want you to see what a father looks like in Jesus' own words. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And I'm just going to quickly walk you through this passage because we won't have time for me to take it apart. And he said, 
there was a man who had two sons. He's a dad. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Here's the first evidence of our Heavenly Father. Here's the first picture of our Heavenly Father. He is a Father of patience. You see, we don't get what's going on. He, in essence, is saying here in Luke 15, starting in verse 11, he is saying this, Dad, drop dead. Dad, I want your stuff more than I want you. Dad, I've had it living here. Now give me my stuff. In Jewish culture, this was such an insult that he should have at least said, son, leave the room. He would have been in his right to give his son a smack. He would have been in the right to grab his son by the back of his neck and throw him out on the street and disown him. He would have been within his right to take him to the elders and say, he is out of control, stone him. But he doesn't do any of those things, does he? You see, he's patient. I think he was patient here not because this was rebellion as it was, but I think he's also patient because he understands childish foolishness. We have a Heavenly Father who understands when we're being simply foolish. And in the midst of our foolishness, He is patient. He's patient. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what He knows we need. And He's patient. Notice the next thing about Him. And he divided his property between them. Here's what they did in those days. The oldest brother, and I, I think this is the right way of doing it as a firstborn. <laughs> the oldest brother gets two-thirds of the property. The youngest, one-third. But you see that word divide? He cuts it in half. No wonder the older brother was upset. But he cuts it in half. The second picture I want you to see about your father is he is generous. He gives you beyond what you deserve. He gives you beyond. He just goes over and above what is required. You have a father who's generous. I want you to also see this. And he divided his property between them. And we see the story starting in verse 13. The younger son takes off and he squanders it. Now, in that culture, to lose wealth recklessly was like the greatest sin. It was an insult to the memory of the father for you as a son to take his wealth and lose all the hard work. So he is embarrass the family famine comes up and he works to feed pigs now as not only has he embarrassed the family but now he is ceremonially unclean he's not to be around these pigs but no he's in the middle of them 
And here's why I say he was foolish, And because there's a wonderful phrase here. It says, and he came to his senses. Oh, what am I doing? Parents, have you ever bumped into your children just being foolish? I remember my, my son coming to me. Hey, do you know how expensive it is living on your own? <laughs> Why no? My dad sends me allowances every week. Foolishness. He comes to his senses and he heads back home. Notice what happens. It's, let's go down to verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Here's the picture of God. The father saw him a long way off. You know what that means? He was looking for him. He was moving to him before he moved to his father. You have a heavenly father who is moving towards you long before you move towards him. And he's moving eagerly and he's moving with compassion. He wants you. He loves you. He is moving towards you. This is the type of father we have. But notice it says, filled with compassion and ran. We had our father-son camp out. We were playing games, us old guys against the kids. I was running around the uneven course we have called a field. Nearly fell on my face several times. I, I understand the wisdom of older guys not running. But in that culture, it wasn't because you didn't run, because you couldn't. You didn't run because it wasn't dignified. It was the ultimate insult to run. They were to come to you. You didn't go to them. But we have a heavenly father who lays aside his dignity to run to us. You say, come on, how does he lay aside his dignity? How about the cross? Anything dignified there? How about sending his son to the cross? How about in the midst of our sin, loving us? Anything dignified there? He sets aside his dignity and runs towards us. Notice the next thing he does. He embraced him and kissed him. I'm going to make a guarantee. You run towards God, he will embrace and kiss you. 
That's acceptance. I want you to think about who this kid is. He's been feeding pigs. He smells. He's been on the road. He's sweaty and dirty and ugly. And yet, he embraces. You say, wow, not bad. One of my favorite performers is a guy by the name of Ken Davis. Any of you ever hear of him? Well, I'm going to tell one of his stories. He said he, he, said he was there looking at a, uh, talking with a man about setting up a television special, and uh, he was on the beach. And his daughter, instead of swimming in the ocean, disappeared because she had found a sewage pond to swim in. She thought it was great. Then she thought, you know, I need to go hug my dad. And so she got up and she ran towards her father. And Ken said, I turned around. I could smell her before I heard her. She was covered with muck. And she runs to me and she says, I'm the love monster. I'm the love monster. Daddy, you got to love me. And he said, what do you think I did? Because I turned around and said, yes, love monster. And she threw herself into my arms. And all that muck went all around me. Kiss me, Daddy. And I kissed her. When we come to our Father, we may be covered with the muck of this world. We may be covered with the muck of our pain, but I want to share something with you. You have a Father wanting to embrace and kiss you. That's your heavenly Notice what else it says. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned. And look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe, that is my robe, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. We miss out on what's going on here. When he says put on the best robe, which is really his robe, when he puts on that robe, everyone would see him as the Father. Just like when God puts on the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ on us, the spiritual world sees the righteousness of Christ, not our own filthy rags. Then notice what it says get a ring. Rings were important in this culture. Rings were how you showed your power and authority. Rings meant that he had the ring of the family. And he had all the authority, all the rights, all the privileges of the family. They were his. He could make deals. He could sign contracts. He was brought fully into the family. 
And not only was he brought in the family, but they put shoes on his feet. You see, in those days, only family members wore shoes. Servants went barefoot. And it was a declaration that I as the Father will do what only I as the Father can do. I will make Him part of my family again. You have a Father who has moved heaven and earth and says to you today, I will make you part of my family. Then he celebrates. We have a father who celebrates when we return. And notice the last thing about our father. He's dealing with the uh, older son who's mad. Who actually says the same thing to his father that his little brother said. He says basically, how come you haven't given me stuff? But notice verse 31. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Let that sink in. What he's saying is, son, you have me. And when you have me, you have it all. All the rights and privileges of being a child of heaven are yours. You have me. Well, friends, this is our heavenly Father. The one who's patient. The one who's eager. The one who's moving towards us before we move towards him. The one who forgives. The one who does what no other father can do. He makes us part of his family. And the one who says, you can have me. So when we pray, our father, that's what we're saying. It's to remind us of who we're talking to. This Father, and a Father in heaven, a Father big enough and strong enough to do what needs to be done. But notice the next part of the verse. Lest we get so caught up in the Abba, which sometimes as Christians we do. Oh, he's the Abba. He's the Abba. He's the Abba. Oh, that's so great. Love, 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 love. But we also need to remember the next part. Hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. What does that mean? Well, holy means to set apart, to treat as special, to treat as different, to treat as uncommon. Now, you remember last week we were talking about the Gentiles and they would come and their common way of treating God was as a lucky charm. And they would pray these prayers, babbling prayers, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, I want, I want, I want, I want, come on, come on, come on, do what I want, do what I want, do what I want, make my life better, make my life That's the common way to treat God. But we are being called Holy is his name. And, and it's his name. 
Scott said it right. When you think of the name, the name is something that is the entirety of that being is what it represents. Everything about God's character, everything about his power, everything about his attributes, when you see his name, that's what it means. Everything about God. But here's the thing. They were so set apart on this name that they wouldn't even speak it. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people of old, wouldn't speak it. In fact, they wouldn't even write it. And when you saw us sing today, Yahweh, Yahweh, they wouldn't say that. In fact, Yahweh comes from the four letters that they would leave. They would leave out the vowels. Now, many times in our Bible, their influence still shows. There are parts of your Bible, especially in the King James, that were translated, the Lord, when the name Yahweh was there, or Yehovah was there. But they were working with Hebrew translators, and the Hebrew translators said, oh, no, 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 just put down the Lord, just put down the Lord. And often it's in all caps when you see the Lord. It was a, a reverence for the name. A reverence that said this name is set apart. It's holy. There's also another way this can be translated. Hallowed be thy name or hallowed is your name is also translated sanctify your name. When we translate it that way, it is a call to action for you and me. We are called to treat his name as holy. We are called to action. It's not, oh yeah, that's a holy name. It's, I have to live in a way that shows and makes and exemplifies the holiness, the uncommonness of that name. I do it how I, how am I called to action? I do it, one, by how I treat the name. Do I treat the name as special? And how special do I treat it? There was a king, he had a court of men. And this king was known for his profanity and he began to curse the name of Jesus Christ. And a man stood up and said, Sire, may I humbly ask that you would cease that use of that name. If you need to use a name, use mine. But please, not that name. The king was known for his anger, known for putting people to death at the drop of a hat. And so the entire court just went silent. This was the king's favorite general. This is the king's favorite count. And he calls him, he says, oh, so this name is important to you. And the count said, oh, there's more important to me. There's no name more special. There's no name more tender. I would gladly give my life this name. And so he said, 
from this point on, if anyone mocks the name of this Count's God, he is to be put to death. So special that he would die for the name. It also has to do with our orientation. I am orienting my life in such a way that I will bring glory and I will show that this is a holy or set-apart name. Tomorrow I'm doing a funeral. It is a lady I've known for about 12 years. Actually a little longer than that. As a young woman, she died last week at 34 years of age. But she was a woman who made up her mind that she was going to live in a way that would set apart the name, live in a way that people would know the name was holy. She was a person who was unashamed that she was a follower of the name. And she would go down the street, and uh, before she'd go down the street, she'd stop at the local thrift store and pick up gloves and, and scarves and jackets and, and blankets. And she would walk down the street, and if she saw someone in need, she goes, I've got something for you. She would see homeless people, and she would come up to them and, and walk, and here's a care package. Um, she got a job at a bar and grill. They're going to shut down the bar and grill for her funeral because she made such an impact. So you might be in prayer tomorrow as I share the gospel once again. A gospel that she lived before them. Many of them have told, in many of the stories that have come, come to me are, she's the first person I've ever seen live like a Christian. Because she lived a life of love towards us. In fact, one of her statements I found was this. I don't want to be defined by what I say. I want to be defined by how I loved. Not bad. And even in the midst of her trials. You see, she had a lousy father when she was little. She wrestled because of that with anxiety and depression and, and whatnot. But even in the midst of all that, she chose to be God's vessel of love to this world. That's what it means to sanctify the name. To orient your life in such a way that you live out who it is that you are honoring. There was a GI in World War II and he saw some little kids with their faces pushed against the bakery window in France. He went in and he bought the pastries and he came out and he gave the pastries to all the little kids. As one little kid left, he had pastry crumbs all over his face he turned and he goes, hey, mister, are you God? And he says, no, but I know him. 
said, I thought so. I bet you're part of his family, huh? Our Father in heaven. A Father who pursues us. A Father who's patient with us. A Father who is generous with us. A Father who embraces us. A Father who loves us. A Father who says, I will give you everything I am. whose name is holy, whose name we, as his followers, orient our lives around. And we remind ourselves every time we pray. Father, thank you for being our Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for putting up with our foolishness. Thank you for moving towards us long before we ever moved towards you. Thank you for being holy, set apart, uncommon. Father, help us orient our lives to your name. Help us sanctify your name with not only our words, but how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we close our service this morning?
Amen. Praise Jesus. Well, last week we closed our service with the traditional reading of the Lord's Prayer. This week, let's close by reading together the NIV translation, which is Matthew 9, 6 to 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. You are dismissed.